Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Friday, the 8th day of July, and during the riding hiatus, I said, um, the day I said I was going to take a little break to write, that as if issues warranted that I would, I would come back on and do content, and certainly the assassination of former Japanese Prime Minister, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. I would warrant that, and particularly would warrant us hearing from Grant his thoughts about, you know, about the event and what happened, uh, his thoughts on that, and then what impact, you know, Prime Minister Abe, um, probably the most aggressive voice, most prominent aggressive voice from Japan in terms of confronting China through strength in the Western Pacific. So losing his voice is, is not a small deal. So um, I'm not going to do the regular show that I would normally do. Um, we will simply transition here very quickly. And uh, Grant Newsham has been coming on the show for years. And uh, everything I know about the Western Pacific, for you know, for all intents and purposes, Grant has taught me. And so uh, without further ado... Um, on a sad note, right, the occasion, um, here's Grant Newsham. In the middle of my writing hiatus, um, obviously the news that um, former Prime Minister Abe, who's been an incredible voice for uh, Western unity and Japanese strength in the in Japan and in the Western Pacific, was initially shot and then ultimately uh, died of his wounds. Uh, stunning. And so I thought that uh, it was appropriate if I reached out to Grant and asked him if he would come on. He graciously said he would. So first of all, Grant, how are you? Oh, fine, thanks. Um, why don't you bring us up to snuff because, I mean, the details that you're um, much closer to to um, Japan than we are. You're much more familiar with the nation. Uh, can you give us the latest on, on what in fact has happened and, and, and where are they um, uh, in all of this? Um, yeah, well, as everybody knows, that yesterday at a, a campaign event uh, where uh, uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Abe was out 
um, sort of stumping for his party's candidates in a town called Nara, which is sort of down in southern Japan, not too far from Kyoto and Osaka. Uh, he was shot and he died of his wounds. Um, so it'd be the equivalent of, you know, if you imagine him, he's outside, a, basically outside a bus station, as passerbys and cars going by, and he's giving a speech. And, you know, a couple of shots ring out and, some, and he, he goes down and they grab the gunman and then uh, he's taken, prime, uh, Mr. Avi is taken off to the hospital. Uh, he was shot from behind and the gun looks like it was, looks like a homemade sort of sawed off shotgun sort of thing. They, they grabbed the guy who did it right away. Um, and he's a 41-year-old man. Uh, we don't know too much more about him. Uh, somebody, he's Japanese apparently, and some people, and he, they note that he was in the Navy for three years, uh, the Japanese Navy, um, but he got out just for three years, very low ranking, and it was like 17 years ago, but he's of course described as a former Japan maritime self-defense guy. Um, and that's about as much as we know. We don't know the, the reason behind it, um, you know, or, or exactly, you know, what other parties might have been involved, or if it was just some lone guy who had a beef with uh, Mr. Abe for some reason. Uh, the that's about where we are. And, but this thing is is really a, a shock uh, for Japan. Uh, it, it doesn't happen. And I think last year there were something like six murders, or excuse me, six murders involving firearms in all of Japan. And that's not a whole lot. Uh, the fact that happened to a politician like this uh, is similarly shocking. It just it's just not something that happens. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of, I don't know, if as Americans, we're sometimes uh, sort of inured, we're sort of used to these, you know, horrible events, but, you know, they happen you know, distressingly often. Uh, but in Japan, it just doesn't happen. You know, you haven't had these sorts of pol political killings uh, since probably the 50s. Uh, so it's been a good long while. In the, the 20s and 30s, they were very common. But you that's know, Grant, I saw, I saw something that um, the New York Times put out that said that how, how many million people are in Japan? About 130. 130 million people. They have had mm -hmm. 14 gun deaths in the last five years. Um, okay. You know, it may be a few more if you count in the Yakuza. Um, but, but it's still, even if you tripled it, you know, that's like a weekend in, you Chicago. know, the city, the city of big shoulders. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Chicago. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it, it is that kind of a, a place. Um, there are, you know, knife killings are far more common, but, but guns are hard to, to have to hard to possess. Um, so actually when I first heard about it, you know, what I, you know, besides the, you know, the, the shock of it happening to sort of a politician like Mr. Abe, uh, you know, I first thought was, huh, I wonder if the Yakuza did it um, and or, you know, the Yakuza working with China or with North Korea or both. Um, but the, then I heard normally that would be done with a pistol. Um, and then I heard it was done with, quote, a shotgun. And then I thought, well, maybe a like an unhappy country person did it because it's usually be farmers who would have licenses to have um, rifles, really. And I suppose they must have some shotguns to shoot wild pigs and deer. Um, 
And so that was went into the the possibility um, book. And then on the the news, I saw a little clip of the gun. And it, first I saw it was blurred and it looked like a sort of high tech um, sort of, I don't know what you call it, like covert action kind of gun or that spies would use. And then I saw a closer view of it and it looked like something sort of taped together in one's garage. And then you started to think, well, maybe a guy who's got some mental problems who did it for whatever uh, reasons people with mental problems do these sorts of things. And, you know, but I'm still, but I'm still where I am is I don't know, you know, who was behind it, who did it, but the, you just don't have the prevalent of guns uh, in the, the, the presence of guns in Japan that you have in the United States. And, and you'll often find that the Yakuza, you know, who might have some guns, they'll usually they'll have like eight rounds. I mean, that's it. You know, they just don't have the, the ammo to, to do much practice. Um, and it's not, and their thing would be more knives and um, uh, that sort of thing. But the, the so this kind of gunplay is, is really unusual. Having it done to a politician, um, particularly a, a prom, one of such prominence, um, that is very unusual as well. It would be as if, uh, say, a former president in the United States was was gunned down. That's how big a shock it would be. Um, maybe it, that'd be a big enough shock even even for us uh, to have that happen. Talk to me about the implications of uh, of this. Uh, he was um, he was a he w- Prime Minister Abe w- was saying things that. Um, that most of us hadn't heard come out of somebody in his position for how long, Grant? Forever, right? I mean, he was talking about, you know, the, the Japanese needed to um, to uh, to look at Taiwan in a different light. That as Taiwan goes, so went Japan. And and uh, you know, you you for those of us who've discussed this kind of stuff and. And waiting for both Japan and Germany to get over World War II and take their place among the free nations of the world and do their fair share. I mean, all of a sudden it was this this um, this strong wind of this very very credible um, former prime minister that was was uh, gently nudging Japan um, to to be more confrontational relative to its own defense and certainly relative to China. Uh, what does this do to all that? It's a huge blow, I would think. Um, you, you would think. Um, in fact, you know, what you've described it very well. Um, since stepping down from office, uh, Mr. Abe has been very clear-spoken uh, about uh, the need for Japan to really improve its defense, uh, to defend, to help defend Taiwan. Uh, he states very clearly to Taiwan's importance, there's that expression, Taiwan's defense is Japan's defense. Uh, He's also talked about Japan having access to nuclear weapons, Uh, you know, American nuclear weapons, ideally, but implicit in that is Japan's as well. Uh, So he is really, and he has in some influence, you know, it's not as if everybody in uh, Japan listens to him or does what he says, but he does, he is influential. And having him say these things was sort of... um, it's like firing for effect. You know, it was adding to the momentum that Japan has uh, has now to um, sort of build its defense, 
be more active politically and economically in the region, in the world, and really speaking up for uh, these ideas that we support. And as a, a counterweight uh, to uh, this uh, Han Chinese aggression that is coming out of China and seeks to dominate the region and uh, the rest of the globe and to get rid of the capitalist system, which uh, includes us, but also Japan, of course. Uh, and he was a voice against that. And that is something that, you know, he was immensely important, you know, doing this. In fact, I had thought that once he stepped down, uh, that Japan might lose some of that momentum. And you might go back to this, the, the custom of Japan doing as little as possible, uh, you know, and relying too much on the Americans um, of Japan changing prime ministers like every three months, not quite three, but every 16 months. And that's what I thought we might return to once he stepped down. But in fact, what you saw is that the momentum that he started, and I think you'd give him credit for it when he came in the second time in 2012, that, that has continued. And that is that surprised me um, a, a bit. And uh, but that's where it is. And he was he was keeping the momentum going. But his successor, uh, particularly Prime Minister Kishida, and Kishida has some good guys around him. Uh, they have uh, really followed Abe's, Mr. Abe's policies uh, when it comes to building up defense and really Japan taking a much more active role uh, worldwide. But it was Abe who really deserves credit for uh, turning the, you know, turning this uh, ocean liner uh, around. And you know, when he came in, he uh, in. Uh, 2012, he um, started to, he reversed a decade of annual defense budget cuts that successive Japanese administrations had done. And he turned, he stopped doing that. He got some small increases every year. Uh, and he also got the uh, collective self-defense interpretation changed. So Japan was able to do more to support Americans, uh, to work more closely with U.S. forces. And that was a big deal. He faced lots of opposition to that. Uh, he got the uh, U.S.-Japan defense guidelines changed once again to make it more easy for the Americans and American and Japanese forces to work together. And he changed the, really the legal basis for it, which was handcuffing Japan. Uh, he went around the world and uh, did the diplomat thing a lot to many, many countries. He started sending the Japanese self-defense force here and there. Uh, to do trainings and you know various activities in the region and into Europe, um, he got some nice agreements signed with some of the uh, allied countries. Uh, he also almost sold submarines to the Australians, <laughs> and that would have been just it would have been a strategic earthquake in a good sense uh, in the region. But the Australian administration of Malcolm Turnbull went went insane. Uh, they cancelled a done deal and went with them Frenchies. And and that thing, that deal came apart after a few years and the uh, Australians are going to pay nearly a billion dollars in cancellation fees and they still don't have a submarine. But Abe was the one who really pushed that. And he saw, he saw Japan's interest in a, a much broader sense. He saw it in a regional, as war, in a uh, global sense. And he thought like a, like a, say a, a guy with a global perspective and how Japan fit in and what it could do and what it needed to do uh, to defend itself. And as I said, these ideas of so you know, freedom uh, and 
he was the first statesman of all the Japanese prime ministers that I've been aware of, say, since Nakasone in the 80s, that I would call a statesman. And this is ironic because he does have some ideas about World War II and uh, constitutional government that I would just, you know, see differently. Uh, but he was smart enough to, uh, I say, to keep his idea, keep those thoughts to himself and to say what needed to be said for Japan's interests. Uh, and he understood the the fundamental importance of the U.S.-Japan relationship to Japan's security. And he did whatever was necessary to protect that and not act as if he was just taking it for granted. Uh, so he, on many fronts, and particularly in security affairs and he and uh, diplomatic and foreign affairs, he really deserves uh, immense credit. Uh, the idea of the Quad actually originated with Prime Minister Abe, uh, as did this expression "free and open Indo-Pacific." You know, he obviously had people around him, uh, but he deserves credit for for all of these things. And you know, he he will be missed uh, just by any measure. I should imagine they are sort of uh, launching some toasts in Beijing uh, today. Uh, that's how uh, in important he was. But I think the momentum will continue. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, what, it's my it, sense. Yeah, it, it give us uh, an assessment of the impact of of his assassination will have on the um, on the pace and the aggressiveness because he was by far the most aggressive and outspoken. Hey, this is what we need to do. Um, that, that, that I have heard, um, and he was consistently. And the other thing I, I thought that made that makes it such a incredible loss for the Western democracies, and we would, <laughs> and China's now a Western democracy, but um, was his credibility, right? I mean, his credibility mm -hmm. was um, was was beyond reproach. He, I mean, he was well respected wherever he went. And you know you lose somebody like that, uh, you know, in a, in a in a at a crucial time in 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 the history of the Western Pacific. Um, uh, so give me give me short term, and then give me um, give me kind of mid to long range term, longer term, shorter term, and, and longer term impact of, of his assassination, Grant. Um, I think Japan is going to catch its collective breath. Uh, pretty fast. That's how they do it. Um, you know, they you know, give stoicism a new meaning, uh, sort of in the face of this uh, this sort of um, adversity. And I think they'll they'll manage it. And I, I think I that the Kishida administration I think is going to uh, continue full speed ahead uh, with this effort to uh, improve defense and you know also to speak up. You know. Uh, say with the political, the economic, the diplomatic uh, components of Japan's national power, uh, I think they are going to keep doing it, and I think they may even have a little bit of a, an oomph or a little uh, impetus from Mr. Abe's death uh, that they will. Um, I think there's going to be they'll find it easier to do some of the things they want to do. One of the immediate things they want to do is change the constitution to recognize the Japan Self-Defense Force. Uh, to give as a sort of a proper military. And this is important, but it requires uh, sort of really a majority of the population to agree with it. That's the thing. But I think they're going to uh, really go ahead with that. And there's a psychological aspect to this change. 
um, that would be very, uh, that's important, that tends to get overlooked. Uh, and it would help the, the JSDF itself in terms of confidence, etc. cetera. Uh, but it, the, the effect of that would ripple throughout the society. So I think things are actually gonna um, say keep moving in the right direction. Um, and that's, you, you know, and I, I'm fairly confident of that. I don't see things sort of um, just sort of drifting off in some direction or going back to the way that they used to be. I think Kishida's got a, a pretty good, he's got some good people around him uh, at a number of levels who think an awful lot like Abe did. Uh, and they know what they, where they want Japan to go. I think the public at large will understand this. Um, his death is in some ways a reminder that uh, Japan lives in a very dangerous neighborhood um, and that China's intentions are to teach Japan a lesson uh, and to dominate uh, the Japanese uh, and Japan. And they, the public is pretty much aware of this, but I think this is sort of a reminder um, of it all. So that would be the, the near term. Um, and then you know, is somebody going to step in and be like the next Abe in terms of being able to articulate uh, what Japan needs to do? Uh, I don't know who that person will be. Uh, you know, maybe they're around somewhere, but he was the, you know, the, the product of a, a long career uh, in politics. And, you know, so he spoke with a unique authority. So, I do, but you know, maybe, uh, we'll, maybe we'll be surprised and there'll be sort of the, another Abe that comes along. Um, the longer term, you know, I, you know I, if, I think that if America makes the effort um, to help explain to Japan, to show them what they need to do, particularly militarily, that I think we have a, an opportunity to really improve Japan's self-defense force capabilities uh, to the point that they are more than the other side wants to tangle with, and also as they can operate better with us. But I think that requires the, the right Americans to sit down with the right Japanese and say, look, here's the threat or both sides have to say, here's the threat. And then the Americans tell them what Japan needs to do in terms of capability, in terms of hardware, um, and sort of the, the, the operational cap capability in particular um, to be able to fight and to fight with us. Uh, but as it is now, Japan's trying to figure, they don't really know what to do. Um, be a bit like if, say, uh, I wanted to build a house and I had the money. But I didn't know what I how to go about it. You know, you do I go get permits? You know, where do I get the drywall from? And um, you know, where's an electrician? How about the plumber? And how about a guy who does foundation work? You know, I wouldn't know how to do it. And you need a good general contractor to to do either do it for you or tell you these are the steps. And I would like the Americans, as I said, to get together, right Americans to get together with the right Japanese and work this out very quickly. Uh, who are the right Americans? Uh, I, would say some, I would say some of our war planners would be very good, um, who say the guys, those nuts and bolt guys who can also understand the bigger picture. Um, that's essential. More than nuts and bolts guys are really what you need. You know, the guy can say, look, if you're gonna fight, you're gonna need this much in war reserves, you're gonna have to handle casualties, you've gotta get logistics to do this, this, and this. Uh, you need your, you know, intelligence and sensors, and and then you've got to fit it in with the Americans, and this is how you, this is what we think you should do, and otherwise it's, you know, you were leaving the Japanese to figure it out on their own, 
And that is where I would like to see somebody like Paycom take the lead and get this done. And I, th- to me, if we do that, then over the long term, I think you would have a, a real capable, solidly linked U.S.-Japan military alliance. And that would translate into a stronger political alliance, but also success breeds success. And you would find other people, other countries that want to get involved in this as well. Uh, in the region and maybe some from out of the region. Uh, But that's something that I think is missing. Um, And if I think if we are going to build to really make um, best use of this momentum uh, that Mr. Abe has created, that we need to get some of those nuts and bolts guys down uh, to help the Japanese understand what they need to do. Uh, You know, one thing you do find, and I've heard it from Japanese people recently, uh, is that you know, in the Japanese political class and even in officialdom, you know, including the Ministry of Defense, you have a lot of people who really understand the need for Japan to improve its defense, but they don't understand defense matters at all. Uh, And in Japan, politicians don't have staffs. They might have like two guys and all they do is handle, um, it's like constituents coming in with gifts of rice and make sure the favors get um, doled out accordingly. Uh, but they don't have policy people. So it's a pretty uh, sort of thin level of understanding of national defense and what's required in Japan. And uh, the Japanese guys I've talked to, they said, boy, it'd be nice if the Americans could like set up some program to help these people understand and learn more about defense and what's required. Uh, Because so much of the debate and discussion in Japan seems to center on buying sort of these silver bullet weapon systems as if that will solve all the problems. Um, but it's, you know, you know how complex a, you know, having a proper military uh, is and all the things that go into it. But in Japan, it's almost a thought you can get out the credit card and just go buy some stuff and your problems are solved. Uh, but that really needs to, that's where I would apply some, uh, some attention uh, where it may, but I think that would make, everything much more effective. Okay, what haven't I been smart enough to ask you about this event um, that you think people should know? Um, let me let me think about that. Um, you know, one thing that I wanted to note, because I've um, mentioned it to some people who I thought needed it mentioned too, is that throughout his entire sort of Term, terms in office, but particularly the second one. Uh, Abe was the subject of just immense hatred. You know, just it's not even vitriol. It's something a thousand times worse than that. It was this personal hatred of him. And I, in some ways, I think that what happened yesterday is the predictable outcome of that sort of animosity directed at an individual with whom you have political disagreements. And that is incredibly unhealthy. And I've seen it in this our own country since at least since George Bush was was in office. Uh, and it, it really does bother me. And I, I think it has a destructive, uh, deadly effect uh, if it's not checked. And, and just I really do wish the people who see their, their people with whom they differ as enemies deserving of destruction, uh, that I, I wish they would really just shut the hell up. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it does bother me. And so, as I said, what happened yesterday, I don't see it as all that big a surprise considering the hatred that was directed towards him. 
by the, the Japanese media, parts of the political class, the foreign press, many foreign observers. And he, after he came into office, in fact, in 2012, uh, the Obama administration stiff-armed him for at least a year, I think refused to have anything real to do with him uh, because they didn't like his views of history and comfort women and it's, you know, it was claimed he was a fascist. And, uh, and they wasted a year when we could have done something useful. Uh, and that was, a, I think, a huge, that is something that you know, I feel compelled to mention because uh, these, th these events just don't happen in a vacuum. Uh, but rather, I think it was the, in some ways a predictable outcome of uh, the hatred directed against a particular uh, individual. Doesn't make me feel. It does not make me feel good when you say, um, "If America does this, because we seem to, I don't know why, and it's inexplicable to me, um, we cannot seem to do the right thing in the Pacific." And so I, I, that doesn't make me feel um, good. And I am not even cautiously pessimistic. I am. I'm aggressively pessimistic about this. And so. Uh, we just we just we just don't seem to be able to um, do anything. And uh, I want to I want to ask you two more things. One, you were quoted in a story that I saw talking about uh, we cannot have enough bases in the Pacific. Uh, I want you to elaborate on that. And then I want to ask you about a joint statement made by the directors of uh, the FBI and MI5, uh, which is the British equivalent of the FBI, as opposed to MI6, which would be the CIA equivalent. Um, but they issue a joint warning, never seen it done in my lifetime, about Chinese espionage. Um, that, that breaks squelch, certainly. So uh, first of all, let's talk about uh, you being quoted as an, ex as an expert on the Pacific. No, a defense expert. Congratulations on that deal. Um, mm -hmm. And... Uh, they obviously don't know your heritage like I do. <laughs> charlatan. The, the Piedmont. Char Char charlatan claims. The Piedmont <laughs> Grant New of the of the Piedmont Newshams. Um, so yeah. talk to us about uh, the story, and uh, and uh, obviously I think everybody would would agree with what you say. Uh, look, if they want a base, put a base in there. Find something to stick there. I don't know what it is. Figure it the fuck out, right? Um, so uh, tell us about it. Yeah, I, I was um, asked for some comments by a reporter um, who was he was focusing on the Americans uh, sort of redoing that uh, airfield on Tinian uh, near Saipan. And you know, he asked me, is this a good thing? So I refused to just say yes. And I gave him another 600 words of <laughs> why it was a good thing. And, uh, and that's what he was getting at. And he was also asked about the larger question of U.S. bases in the Pacific. And so that's what I, you know, I just was trying. It pointed out that you can never have too many places from which to operate uh, if you're, you know, doing military operations. And that goes for the Pacific. And I, I used an expression, I forget, places from which to operate or such like. And once I think I put bases slash access. Uh, because you'll run into a certain class of person who will immediately tell you why it's too hard to have bases and, you know, this and that. And, it, and you know, and they'll trot out this expression, bases, not places. Uh, well, I don't care. How about places from which you can operate whenever you want to do it? 
uh, and places from which you can be where you can be all the time. Call it what you will. Uh, some places don't, you know, prefer it not to be called bases and glad to call it something else, a training location, you know, a replenishment center, etc. Uh, it doesn't matter. The point is that we needed a lot more places in the Pacific region where U.S. forces can can operate. And currently, we just don't have enough. And we've got these big bases in Japan. I've got some on Guam, South Korea, and some access in Australia. But after, other than that, we don't have many places at all. And the Pacific's a big place, and those aren't enough places. And they're also just a few juicy targets, uh, which simplifies things if you're you know, in the, in the PLA. Uh, and that's what I was pointing out, that we needed to do more in this regard and that we have allowed over the last 30 plus years uh, with the, the access points, the bases that we did have to uh, go away. And now we're suddenly all interested in the Pacific and we don't have enough places to operate. Uh, we, it didn't go into the piece, but we've also turned down at least four invitations over the last 10 years to set up bases um, in uh, different parts of the Pacific. Uh, most recently, as of a year and a half ago, uh, down in Tonga. And at bases or training areas, call them what you will, but places that wanted us in, uh, we turned those down uh, for whatever reason. Uh, Palau offered us a place uh, two years ago, I think, and said, please set up a base. And we have not jumped on this the way we should. And I have a feeling now that Palau is no longer talking about a base, but is just kind of hoping the Americans come a lot. Uh, you have to strike while the iron's hot on these things. We don't haven't done it. And I'm pointing out that we really do need to uh, to get on that and fast because the Jap the Chinese have set up uh, the sort of the, the the presence and the in some cases the infrastructure uh, for moving the PLA in to a number of locations in the Pacific. Uh, and it's just a question of time. If we don't get get involved in this, get get active fast. And you, the one difference, of course, between bases and, and these places, as you, as you just mentioned, is it's not somewhere you come only now and then or when there's a you know, crisis somewhere, but it's places you've got to be all the time. And it can be just a small detachment, you know, say, led by the right lieutenant, the right captain, uh, and, but you've got to be there. And if you're not, you're not interested, you're creating a vacuum and the Chinese will fill those vacuums. Uh, they're filling them you know, as we speak. Uh, and that's what I was, so that's what I was getting at in the, uh, in the comments that I made, which turned out to be the entire story. Uh, so uh, that was, um, that was that. All right, talk to us about uh, that joint statement. The Chinese um, pushed back on it uh, vigorously, right, headline. Uh, China denies espionage accusations from the U.S. <laughs> United Kingdom, right? The only thing missing is the rim shot. Um, it's more... Exactly. What, yeah, okay. you, uh, what, you don't hang out in the right clubs. What do you make of that? Um, well, it's, it's funny. It's a joke that it's been around forever, and it's true, is that you never know what the truth is until the Chinese Communist Party denies it. And that really is true. Uh, you know, I you know, must say, and that's what the story is here. Um, the, these, um, the head of FBI and MI5, at least, uh, made this joint statement, as you said, that saying the Chinese are, you know, the biggest threat we've ever had, and they're stealing everything. 
uh, and influencing all over the place, and we got to do something about it. Uh, and that tells you something when both sides are that uh, worried to say this publicly. And keep in mind, that was only five or six years ago that Xi Jinping came to London and he was given a ride with the Queen in the golden carriage. Um, it was an absolute love fest, um, though I'm told the Queen wasn't happy about it. But the, really, the Quislings that were running the British government uh, let it happen. And with the, you know, the city of London, sort of um, England's Wall Street, Britain's Wall Street, uh, where they were big on it, too. So look at how things have changed uh, over the, the years. And now you are seeing a more collective appreciation by the, the free nations that China is a threat. And you weren't even allowed to say this in the late 2010s. Uh, so that is, is a shift. Now, doing something about it is always the hard part. And whether or not this administration has the nerve or the presence of mind or even the desire to do it, I don't know. You know, I, I really don't know uh, if they do. Uh, you know, they one could easily, just as easily say about this statement, why wasn't it made 10, 20 years ago? Uh, why are you just figuring it out now? Uh, and, well, I, and again, I think the answer is clear, though, Grant, that the Chinese, um, their greatest ally uh, sits in lower Manhattan. And that is uh, that is the that is Wall Street. That is they are the great enabler. And so what you're talking when you're talking about about whatever you're talking about here, getting tougher with China. That means the cost of everybody's soccer balls is going up at Walmart, at Target, right? And uh, we've completely exported in entire industries to the Chinese um, so we can have cheaper, you know, goods and American companies can make all kinds of money in China, all mm -hmm. kinds of money. And, and for that, we'll sell out the nation. And we have. And so the question is, you know, so what these two directors are saying Right now, eyes get cast at Washington. What are you going to do? Well, the smart people look at Wall Street and say, what are you going to do? What are you going to tell the people who you contribute to their campaigns? What are you going to tell them to do? Hey, don't do this. Right. Don't do this. So, yeah, you know, there was just the other day. Um, it was a, sort of a public letter that was put out um, by some luminaries. Uh, in the U.S. business world, um, I think um, uh, a fellow named Mo Greenberg uh, was the the brains behind it, and is basically saying uh, he's the um, the big financier, and he was basically saying uh, that hey, we got to be uh, let's see, we got to start talking again to the Japanese. The business classes have to start talking. You know, things are getting dangerous. You know, we got to engage with them, and signing this thing were. Um, uh, you know, for a former ambassador to China, Bill Cohen, former Secretary of Defense, for whom uh, General Mattis went to work. Uh, figure that one out. Joe Lieberman, supposedly the conscience of the Senate a while back, right. uh, another uh, former ambassador to, to China. And you read this thing and it is kind of nuts. You know, it no mention of human rights and you know, the Chinese behavior, but rather we just got to talk and figure it out and suggesting that it's, you know, kind of our fault that if we have problems with the Chinese and these are not, well, they're less influential than they were because I think people are getting a little tired of them. 
but the fact that they can put this out with a straight face uh, tells you just how influential that Chinese constituency is in the United States. And one of the signatories actually was a, a colleague in the commercial section of mine in the embassy in Tokyo in the 90s. He's become, a, I think, a well-paid China whisperer uh, since then. Um, but that's, it was, you know, this stuff never goes away. You've really got, you know, these, um, a mindset that is still around that is going to cost us uh, this conflict, uh, to my way of thinking. But, but I would also note, going back to the FBI director and MI6 fellow, or fives, uh, fellow speeches, that uh, back in the late 90s, when I, I worked for Motorola Japan and Korea, I used to give these presentations to sort of, show our guys how the Chinese threat you know, to our technology worked and what we should do about it. And so this was like uh, 25 years ago. And I, the, the point being that sometimes my uh, perspicacity, I mean, it just, it, it just uh, leaves me awestruck as well. Uh, but they, no, I'm joking about that. But it, the point is, this, it's been a problem that's been around for a long time. So the fact these guys have suddenly discovered gravity a week ago, uh, you know, it has to be viewed in a certain context. Quote, the Chinese government is set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick, and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market, Ray said. They're set on using every tool at their disposal to do it. Ray and McCallum said state-sponsored hacking is carried out to gain access to technology Beijing has rendered important and new counterintelligence investigation into the Chinese government is open roughly every 12 hours. McCallum and Chinese, McCallum said, and this is the British FBI guy, although they don't call it the FBI, they call it MI5. McCallum said, Chinese officials are operating a coordinated campaign on a grand scale, a strategic contest across decades, according to the transcript. Um, so again, more of the same, but unusual that they would that these two directors would do this in public. And again, the question is, right? Does it get any traction? Um, will the people that legislate in the United States, in the United Kingdom, um, take a little starch out of the sale of the money coming from China into? corporate headquarters and say, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. So. Uh, it might. You know, the Trump administration did uh, launch a number of initiatives along those lines, showed what can be done. Uh, and, you know, so just need to, it's really just need to get the right people uh, in the right positions. And it's it's not hard to have an, a pretty immediate effect. All right, Grant, uh, first of all, you stayed up late to do this. I, I certainly appreciate that. And, and I, I just... Um, um, Prime Minister Abe, um, it is the Western world's loss. Um, not sure who did this, why they do it, why they did it, but it is, uh, I'm, as you said, Japan, the nation of Japan shocked, the whole world shocked it that this would come out of Japan this way. But certainly um, strategic implications from um, a, a strong, strong leader uh, post uh, his elected term uh, in this um, in this cold war that d is developing in the Western Pacific, so uh, so thank you very much for coming on and doing this. Sure, glad to glad to weigh in a bit. 
that'll do it on this Friday. Um, thanks for listening. My thanks to Grant for coming on. Um, I think it's about three in the morning we're granted. So, uh, obviously staying up late working and, uh, on relatively short notice jumped on here and I always appreciate Grant and, um, his flexibility and, and, uh, I think he truly enjoys coming here on all Marine radio, um, being a fellow Marine officer and, uh, and obviously we share a similar perspective so my thanks to grant for coming on um have a great weekend and uh as uh events warrant you'll hear more maybe i'll drag the mensa brothers on and uh they'll do their thing so uh, on that note i'm mike mcnamara this all marine radio thank you very much for listening have a great weekend. Happy 4th of July to everybody. I hope you busted the Declaration of Independence out. Yeah. And read that thing. Nothing says fuck you like the Declaration of Independence. So, again, um, thank you very much uh, for listening. And on that note, have a great one. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. <laughs>